Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 2, Episode 16, Half-Life 2. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I'm Mitz. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie, although today a video game, whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media, all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, that's awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre and all are welcome. But before we get into the video game we're going to be talking about today, we are going to go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe? All right, welcome to the corner. Um, all right, well, today, so talking about Half-Life, uh, Half-Life's always been one of, well, since the first game came out, it's been one of my favorites. Uh, so the series as a whole has always been near and dear to me. Um, so I guess all of us present today, unfortunately, Brianna's not here, but all of us here are, to my understanding, gamers to one degree or another. Uh, but uh, so it got me kind of curious about some of your guys' favorite uh, game series and what you, um, what things have always been really important to you gaming wise. Uh, so, um, I mean, uh, I guess I'll start us off. Like, like I said, Half-Life's probably the top of my list, uh, but we're going to talk about that plenty. So I was going to mention another one, uh, and I probably brought it up before, but, uh, the Elder Scrolls games have always been, in, uh, a big deal for me too. Well, not always. I'll say I was a little late to the game on those. I really didn't get into the series till, uh, Oblivion, uh, but Skyrim, uh, is a is a big favorite of mine. I uh, <clears throat> I often <laughs> I spend a lot of time on that game, and I'll just go in and it's like if I need to kind of decompress from life, like Skyrim's often where I go because I can just spend time like wandering around the forest if I want. I don't have to do anything uh, if I don't want to. And uh, I <laughs> another funny thing that I have done is like, I'll see pretty things in nature in real life and be like, I should go play Skyrim. <laughs> Cause I don't know. It's just that sort of game. That's very atmospheric. That. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> and then I try to enter yeah. my inventory and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Crossover <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's always been a big one for me too. Uh, for me, I have probably a f quite a few that I could think of offhand. One of them that probably really sort of shaped my love of video games would be like, would be Fable. Uh, if anybody knows me, my handle for Twitch streaming and then games is usually Chicken Chaser, which is a re reference to Fable. Uh, so I really like both the first Fable and 2 and 3. I know that that can be a bit of a controversial opinion, but I like all of them quite a bit. Um, but I could also bring up uh, the Halo series, which I was a big fan of, and then also Pokemon, which I have consist consistently played probably since I was like 10 years old. So I still will jump into those games whenever they come out. So... Those would be all of mine. 
Um, the first one that comes to mind for me is, of course, the Sims franchise. I have sunk thousands of hours into every installment of the Sims franchise since I was six years old and I got my first Sims game from the Easter Bunny. Shout out to the Easter Bunny. And I now have a YouTube channel for The Sims. And uh, also Pokemon, as Chicky said. I think Pokemon Blue was my very first video game ever on the Game Boy Color. So that that's a near and dear one to my heart. Another one that brings me nostalgia would be Kingdom Hearts. The Kingdom Hearts series. And also, most recently, World of Warcraft. Um, that's one that I've definitely become the most attached to lore wise i bought some of the books so that you know you know it's an obsession when you start buying other pieces of media from the game <laughs> so those would probably be my top four did you want to shout out your youtube channel here sure it's at mitsomnia so that's m-i-t-s-o-m-n-i-a and then I guess, Matt, you already said, you know, Chicken Chaser 89 on Twitch. But if there's anything else you want to, because I know you've got your YouTube channel for Pokemon as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to check out YouTube, I have uh, a channel that's dedicated entirely to Pokemon Go and just has shorts about that. And that is Chicken Chases Pokemon. Um, and then obviously my Twitch is Chicken Chaser 89, which is more like survival horror currently streaming like harry potter resident evil 4 diablo 4 those kind of games and you can catch me sometimes bumbling through a game with him as well usually him carrying me on a game of dead by daylight so that's always fun uh for me i think that uh there's a few franchises franchises video game wise that i've always really liked but the one i guess that's probably the most worth calling out is doom because that's Maybe the game that really got me into video games on the PC side more than anything, because I played plenty of Nintendo and Sega Genesis and like Mortal Kombat and the Super Mario Brothers games and stuff. But Doom is one that I've always followed. And then uh, just more recently, Dead Space, I guess recently is relative just to say that uh, I got into Doom when it first came out and I got into Dead Space a little bit after it first came out and the difference between those was you know a little over a decade still so um but yeah those two franchises those are always big ones for me that I'm always gonna kind of pay attention to and follow um I wouldn't say that I've always thought of myself as a big Half-Life fan. I know obviously we're talking about it here, but it's also one of those franchises when I think on it, I do replay it a fair amount. So that's usually if I'm revisiting something, then I realize I, I like this more than I realized I like this because I'm willing to go back to it. It's a happy memory. So, uh, But yeah, just when I was growing up playing Doom, I'd get involved in all of the modding aspects of it. I used to like the comic series Spawn, and so I was working on a total conversion mod to turn Doom into a Spawn game. So that was something that I was... I didn't get very far in, but I'd worked on a lot of animations and stuff for so that was kind of something that was fun. And then it's nice to see Dead Space coming back. And then, uh, oh yeah, Resident Evil. I think I've played all the mainline Resident Evil titles minus just one or two. Like I haven't played Resident Evil Zero and I don't think I played Resident Evil Revelations 2 or Code Veronica, but otherwise I've played all of the story installments one through eight. So yeah, 
those are big ones for me. Very cool. I uh, I think games are uh, really interesting media or uh, medium rather for storytelling, and it's fun to hear what everybody is really into as far as games go. So thanks for sharing, everybody. I think the other thing that's kind of interesting about it too is how kind of relationships to it have changed a lot with the advent of Twitch and things like that. I think a lot of us grew up watching a sibling playing video games, so it's interesting to me too how prevalent it is now to not just play games but also to watch people play games and how that can kind of change the experience and change the way that we engage with that medium. So Steve, were you were you the watcher or the player? I think both really. I think when I was grow like when me and Matt were growing up, when I was, you know, more able to get the video games, it was him having to watch it. I was like, this is my stuff. But then later on, towards the end of our time, both kind of living at home, it was like he would have game systems. So I'd spend more time watching him play stuff that I didn't really have. So like most of my experience with N64 games is watching Matt play them. And then a lot of the original Xbox stuff is watching him play those as well. And then deciding to play them afterward. Would you agree, Matt? I think that's how I viewed it anyway. Yeah. Like I remember my first kind of introduction to Resident Evil was like watching you play Resident Evil two and three on PC and me being perfectly content to just watch you play those, because I was pretty young, but I was like also super enjoying watching those. And then I remember when I started playing N64 um, or like Xbox, you kind of would watch me play like Jet Force Gemini or games like that, and then you got into those games too. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a give and take there. Yeah. I have a lot of fond memories of a similar experience with my younger brother he'd watch uh he'd watch me play half-life a lot and some other games but uh yeah that was definitely a definitely a thing that happened a lot around my household as well same i'm glad it's a universal memory (laughs) (laughs) yeah I honestly think that is why Twitch is so big is because so many people enjoy just watching some games like I never played a Resident Evil game for so long because my memories were so deeply rooted in like I just enjoy watching this. (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting too. just kind of lead into the video game we're talking about here is I think the first time that I played Half-Life 2 all the way through was on Xbox, the orange box that came for that, or maybe it was 360. I can't remember which of those two systems it was on, but I remember Matt, you happened to be out here. And so you were just like, we sat together on the couch and like I was playing through and you just watched me play through. And it was like, it was a fun time. Yeah. I don't remember that really, but I'm sure it happened. <laughs> it sounds like something <laughs> that often happens. <laughs> I don't remember actually. <laughs> I, I remember maybe having seen some of Half-Life play, like some of the Half-Life playthrough before this, and that's probably where I saw it. But, you know, I've watched you play so many games at this point, so. And then the other thing I think about, too, is that um, Half-Life 2 came out pretty close to when Joe and I were roommates in college, and we had this whole, we had a group of eight guys that all lived in the same house, and most of us were interested in the game, so... Uh, for a little while there, it was like someone was playing Half-Life 2 pretty much nonstop for like a week, and you could watch somebody playing it at any given time if you were at the house. 
Yeah, it was probably often me playing it, honestly. Well, it was you and it was, it was Scott and I don't know, there's, there's a bunch of guys there. Like, I feel like I saw everybody play it. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, that's our lead into uh, what we're going to be talking about today. And I will let uh, Joe introduce that. And I'm sure you already know what it is because you clicked on this link. So I'll turn the time over to Joe again. Joe? Okay, so Half-Life 2. The developer and publishers, Valve, uh, they've done a, a bunch of stuff. Uh, Half-Life's, I would say, their biggest thing. Maybe that's just because it's the biggest thing for me, but they've done a bunch of other stuff like Dota 2, Left 4 Dead, 1 and 2. Those were also favorites of mine as well. Uh, and then, you know, Team Fortress and lots of stuff. Uh, and they also uh, have their Steam store, which is a big deal in the gaming world. Um, so for this one, we had... They're, the way they did it is kind of interesting because they listed like kind of their whole development team and didn't give a lot of like specific titles to different people. But I think you can safely say that the director's Gabe Newell. Uh, the art, artistic director was Victor Antonov. And one of the main writers is Mark Laidlaw. Um, one of the other, I, I feel like the music is pretty... Uh, it's I think it's very interesting in this game and it like kind of tells you a little bit how to feel about different situations. I mean it does in all games, but anyways, I felt like it was important to say also that there's a composer who is Kelly Bailey uh for this for this game. Alright, the back of the box description for this game is the player again picks up the crowbar of research scientist Gordon Freeman, who finds himself on an alien infested earth being picked to the bone. Its, re its resources depleted, its populace dwindling. Uh, Freeman is thrust into the uh, inevitable uh, role of rescuing the world from the wrong he unleashed back at Black Mesa. And a lot of people he cares about are counting on him. So as uh, you probably can guess, spoiler warning from here on out, anything in the Half-Life series is fair game to discuss. Obviously, we'd be focused on Half-Life 2, but that doesn't mean that we won't be bringing up points from other games, potentially. Uh, the mainline franchise itself at this point is comprised of five games, Half-Life, Half-Life 2, Half-Life 2 Episode 1, Half-Life 2 Episode 2, and Half-Life Alex. And then, of course, there are some spoilers within from the connected universe games of Portal and Portal 2. So any of those potentially could have some spoilers. And also, just a shout out, I know it's uh, almost a two-decade-old book at this point, but it was a really amazing resource in preparing for this episode is Half-Life 2 Raising the Bar. That was written by David Hodgson and published by Prima Games. They had a lot of great interviews and quotes from people that worked on the series, a uh, couple of which I'm going to share with you now, which is to look at, of course, the creator intent side of things. So we have a quote here from Gabe Newell, who um, he was describing some of their inspirations for this game, citing specifically Doom and Stephen King's story, The Mist, as inspirations. And what he had to say there was, when I remember playing Doom, I was just being scared silly. It was like, oh my god, it's another one of those flashlight, flashing light areas. I am so screwed now. And every time I'd move into an area, I'd hear that door sound going off. That was what I was trying to get back to when we used Stephen King as a metaphor. 
this is like the kind of experience we want to get back to. Not this incredibly dominant machine gun with an attitude thing, but more like, oh my god, what is around the corner? There are all these tentacles and they're all twitching around. And then another quick quote too is from Eric Johnson. He was one of the development team again on Half-Life 2. And he was talking about their designing of Ravenholm, one of the levels in Half-Life 2. And he said, Ravenholm began as we're going, to, we're going to build this really kind of traditionally spooky horror experience. And then throughout Half-Life 2 Raising the Bar and other interviews, it's clear that some of the inspirations that they took in making the original Half-Life game was uh, Doom itself. So that game we've already brought up. And Quake, another id Software game. Stephen King's The Mist. And also the Evil Dead series. So clearly some horror IPs that they were looking at and then um, I guess if you want to flesh out the trivia part there Joe uh, so one interesting thing about Half-Life 2 uh, specifically in the series is it was set to release in like September of 2003 uh, but the game code was hacked by a German hacker Axel Gem Gemby I think is how you pronounce it uh, but he shared the code with, like, it was a friend of his or something, and that friend leaked it to the internet, and uh, it caused a lot of big waves uh, at, for the game. And it was already, the game itself was kind of already under a lot of pressure, and it wasn't looking like it was going to uh, meet the deadline, uh, their release date. So uh, this was kind of the nail in the coffin for it to not be released on time. Uh, and it, you, you hear or you can see a lot of like of the development team talk about how uh, disheartened they were after this and how like their um, their productivity just kind of dropped off after this because they were just they were kind of all just kind of devastated about it getting leaked the way it, that it did. Uh, but anyways, uh, so the game didn't actually end up coming out till November two thousand four. Uh, but in March 2004, the the Axel Axel Gamby uh, contacted Gabe Newell and was like, "Hey, like I'm sorry, I had no malicious intent. Like I never meant for this to happen. I was just, you know, fiddling around. And I don't I don't know the whole story here, but I guess like the Newell kind of." was working with the FBI and he invited Gamby to like a fake job interview. Uh, it, and they were going to like arrest him when he, once he got to the United States. Uh, but uh, I guess police arrested him in Germany uh, before that happened. And that, that was in like 2006. Gamby was sentenced, sentenced to three years of probation. Um, but yeah, it was, it's just kind of an interesting bit of trivia about Half-Life 2. And I think it is, uh, it, I think it affected a lot of the way Valve, the, the, a lot of the way that Valve operates, even to this day, they're very tight-lipped about any of their projects. I, I feel like specifically about Half-Life projects, but I think it's true of probably anything they're doing. They really don't talk about it until it's a for sure thing, and it's um, and it's like on the cusp of being released. Uh, and I think that I think that stems from this. And that was kind of a thing that in in research we in researching this episode we had a little bit of trouble finding uh, developers who were really talking 
too much about it. And I think that was part of it because like that, that whole year from the time that it got hacked to the time that it was released, uh, all the developers were just like super close lipped about anything and they were all kind of already disheartened about it. Uh, so anyways, it's just an interesting thing in researching this episode. One of the other things I thought was kind of crazy involved with that is to just, I guess, point out the extent of what that leak was. The first Half-Life mod called Half-Life The Thing was released before Half-Life 2. So the first Half-Life 2 mod called The Thing was released before Half-Life 2 was released because all of the resources were there enough that basically somebody went and developed their own game with the material that was available. It's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, that blows me away. (laughs) So anyway, um, normally what we would do here is kind of talk about the meta tags to see how people are kind of receiving this game. Uh, It's a little bit different with it being a video game. So some of the tags that I was at least able to find some of the traditional places is that you can find entries for it on Google Play, which talks about it being action. You can find entries for it on IMDb talking about the cast listing where they describe it as action adventure sci-fi. GameSpot calls it action. And then you have the tags that people as users can specify for games on Steam. And so it doesn't tell you what percentage of users picked different tags. It just allows anyone to kind of put those and then they'll give you the ones that are the most often cited. Now, those tags can tell you things about how the game works, but they can also tell you more traditional genres. So as far as traditional genre labels, Steam labels it as things like action, sci-fi, adventure, dystopian, zombies, aliens, horror, and atmospheric. Of those on the main actual page when you pull it up, you just see uh, action and sci-fi. Uh, You have to click further in to see some of these other genres that are listed. And then, of course, one of the other things that you end up running into because of that is a lot of the descriptors with it being a video game describe how the game itself works. So you have other descriptors like FPS being first-person shooter or single-player or story-rich shooter, first-person silent protagonist, physics puzzle, multiplayer, Classic, great soundtrack, and moddable, which are all things that don't really help for what we're looking at. Um, In terms of Google and Wikipedia searches, there was no real search trends here that would indicate that anyone's looking at this every particular holiday, so we're not seeing it around October getting like bumps in searches or anything, so no real help there. Um, But, alright, going in, uh, what did everyone think? Is Half-Life 2 horror? Okay, this was a was and is a really hard question for me, because um, it's it's really hard for me to th- kind of set aside this game, uh, aside from the whole series. Uh, I think it is a horror world, but I think we're playing an action hero. Uh, so I think the series is horror, but I don't know. I don't. I'm not calling this specific game horror. Uh, and that's just, and that's kind of on a percentage basis. Not enough of this game was horror for me to call it out and out horror. Uh, but, anyways, we'll get into all that, I'm sure. 
Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. I think that the game is an action sort of sci-fi kind of game. Although I would say that maybe Ravenholm itself could be a sort of horror vignette uh, if you just look at that chapter alone. Uh, but yeah, not the gamut itself, I don't think, as a full picture, is enough to be called horror. Um, so I should probably be transparent and say that I played up to Ravenholm myself. I played it up to Ravenholm. And then the rest of the game I watched as a playthrough on YouTube, so I didn't actually play the whole game. I It was about 50-50 of the time I spent watching and playing it. Um, but I think... From what I ha- what I played through and what I saw, it's not horror. Yeah, I think that I'm on the same page with everybody else here. Is I think that there is potential to have Half Life as a very horror driven universe, and I think that that happens in some of the other games more. From what I've played of Alex, and I think more so in say Episode One, particularly, and in some of the parts honestly of the original Half Life, but Half Life Two doesn't emphasize that as much and so i think that the action sci-fi adventure is a better descriptor of the game than horror despite it having horror elements so yeah not horror for me either all right so going into this another quote from half-life 2 raising the bar thanks again out there for making that book uh from gabe newell he says one of the unique characteristics of games as a medium is that you have to create it in cooperation with the audience A single-player game is really a movie that you create in cooperation with the player, where the lead actor doesn't have a copy of the script. Okay, so end quote. So with that in mind, Half-Life 2 doesn't feature any cutscenes. The player always has control of the main character, Gordon Freeman, and the story is told by interacting with NPCs in the environments. So due to this method of storytelling... Even though the main story is always told, there are a lot of details and dialogue that you can choose to interact with or you can ignore altogether. So with that in mind, do you feel like whether Half-Life 2 is horror depends on how you choose to play the game? I think it definitely does. Uh, there, the, I, like I kind of said before, I do think this is a horror world that we're dealing with. And if you choose to spend your time looking at some of those aspects a little closer in some of those areas and some of those the features that you come across, uh, I I think it makes a big difference. Like you could mostly ignore all that if you wanted to, um, with maybe the exception of Ravenholm. But even that, if you're if you want to, you can rush through that as well. Yeah, anyways, I guess short answer is, yeah, I do think it makes a big difference as to what you as the main character pay attention to. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think uh, you can choose to engage or not pretty pretty heavily with the cutscenes, which I'm playing a lot more modern games recently, and my horror experience is usually with more modern games. And I feel like... uh, this idea of you being able to kind of move around and be free through all the cutscenes, the quote unquote cutscenes, isn't a common thing anymore. Um, it almost became, becomes like a cinematic experience now in horror games. So for this, I feel like I'll, through a lot of the dialogue, especially, I'm just like putting, I was just like putting around, like picking up stuff, 
tossing it around or putting things in the little transporter thing and transporting them from one side to another. So I guess I, I wasn't like paying as <laughs> much attention to the dialogue in a lot of places just because of that, because of the freedom. Um, I'm going to be contrarian and say it does not matter because even though this game does allow you a lot more freedom than a cutscene game, you there is still a clear path that you have to follow to get to the next part of the game. And so you're still going along the story um, and encountering the things that would be horror anyway. So I... I think I don't think it matters whether or not you're paying attention. If you're if there's horror in the game, you will see it because you have to go through those areas. I think that this one was kind of a hard question for me in just thinking about it because I think that there are some really horrific elements within the Half-Life universe, and we'll get into this a little bit more in detail in a few moments, but just I think if you're just running and gunning, then it would be easy to come out at the other side of it and say, yeah, Ravenholm was the only thing that had any horror elements to it and there wasn't anything in the rest of the game. But if you stop and look around areas a little bit more and think about what's there or try and focus on some of the dialogue or explore a little bit, you get rewarded with some of these other little moments that might feel it, make it feel a bit more within that category. I would say that I don't necessarily think that the mainline story itself is necessarily all that horror focused. So I, I don't know. I think that you could give yourself an experience closer to horror if you were looking for it within this particular game, but I, I'm not sure that it will hundred percent get there. So like I was super excited for this game when it, uh, when it first came out and I was one of those people who was like, Oh, this game's getting delayed. Like anyways, that's a side point. But anyways, the point is um, when it did come out, I picked the, I picked the game pretty clean. Like I, I went through it with a fine tooth comb and I guess there, to me, there are a lot of those areas that you don't have to go to. Like there's buildings there's whole buildings that you can come up to that have their own little horror stories. In my opinion, like you find, you can find a building that's like kind of in, in ruins, but uh, you know, you go inside and like you find a door that's all, all boarded up and there's kind of blood and stuff all over the house and you f figure out how to get behind that door. And it turns out there's uh like one of those big head crab zombies in there that throws the tarantula looking things at you and for me that like you can write your own little story for what happened there you know somebody got infected with a head crab and they couldn't they either couldn't kill them or couldn't bring themselves to kill one of their loved ones and they so they boarded him up in the house and left and so like there's like a mini horror story right there and there's also a lot of little like mini jump scares uh that you don't get if you're not kind of picking through stuff like i can one specific part you're like there's like this really low little like tunnel and you crawl back there because you can see that there's an ammo box back there and you're like okay well i need ammo so you crawl back there and you break the ammo box and then right behind the ammo box is a head crab zombie and you're and the, you know the first time I did that was a huge jump scare because I was not ready for it and you know I had to like stumble to try and find a 
a weapon to kill it because I just had like the crowbar out. But anyways, like I think there are a lot of those like mini little areas that have a much more horror feel to it that you really can completely ignore if you want to. So in terms of the game itself, I guess what stuck out what stuck out as the most horror element. Obviously, I think most of us are going to say Ravenholm, and that's fine if that's the case. But I'd like to hear that. But also, what after that do you think is the most horrific element? Is those like many areas finding those homes, finding those little jump scares? Like, yeah, what sticks out the most is Ravenholm. It and what comes after that? Definitely Ravenholm, uh, and then there uh, there's a couple other spots that. They're shorter, but I feel like are similar in tone because you, you get, you know, some spots where you have to go down in the sewers and it's kind of darkly lit and, um, you know, you just have some fires burning or something and there's a bunch of head crabs or there's one area where you have to kind of, you're down in the, like a car tunnel and you have to go around to open the door for the other people. And there's a whole bunch of like hazardous waste and stuff that you have to kind of jump from spot to spot on. And when you get to like kind of the middle of the area and you're surrounded by hazardous waste. And then like all of a sudden all these zombies start popping up out of the water, out of the hazardous waste stuff. And like for me, like I had been, it was another one of those times when I was, uh, when I first played it. When you kind of have to to jump through the area, you have to pick up different objects and put them like kind of, you know, leapfrog yourself across the water um, so that uh, so that you can get across. But I wasn't ready for a fight because I was so focused on that. And then all of a sudden I'm surrounded by zombies. So that was that felt more horror to me, too. That was one of the areas. I was going to say maybe the I don't know if it's the first, but it feels like kind of the first encounter with the face huggers that maybe like, um, or the head crabs or whatever those are called, uh, where it's, I forget if it's just before the boat sequence or after the boat sequence, uh, but like you just run under this little bridge area and they are like, they rise up out of the ground, a bunch of them right there. And you're also getting like fired on by the by the other guys. Uh, the what are those guys called? Com, com, commune. The combine. The bad the combine guys. guys. Yeah, those guys. And you're getting fired on by those guys. But then there's like zombies rising up. I think there's a few, like little spots throughout the game that are like that, where it kind of just reminds you that those are there, and like. Joe said kind of if you go exploring in different nooks and crannies then those kind of scary moments sort of pop up out at you a little bit but you can also kind of choose to run and gun past those and I think the game sort of the game is weird in a way because it sort of encourages you to run and gun a lot of times and so if you're in that mindset you might miss things also it like encourages you to do both. It encourages you to explore, but also encourages you to run and gun. <laughs> yeah, the scariest moment, of course, or the scariest part for me would be Ravenholm. But it's because, well, I'm sure my reason is the same as everyone else's, but I found the headcrab zombies particularly terrifying because of the wailing and the screaming that they constantly did, especially when they're on fire. I found that very disturbing. 
Um, I don't know why. It's just something about how they become human in that moment, you know? But also, throughout the game, I found the headcrabs themselves to be pretty horrific because of... If you stop and think of what's actually going on there, it's pretty dark. I mean, you could see them as just little creepy aliens that you need to shoot and run away from. But it's it's really like biological warfare from these combine people. They are literally sending these head crabs to turn people into zombies. And that to me that's pretty horror. And that happens throughout the game, so. Yeah, that's definitely I think and we'll get into this a little bit more in depth in a moment or two here, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of horrific implications about things where if you stop to think or pull any sort of narrative thread then it gets a little bit worse in thinking about it so i think that's always interesting that happening throughout this game how would you say that this game compares to other more traditional horror games that you've played i uh, i think one aspect that i i'm just trying to think in my head what i what i would be comparing it to but i think one thing is there's a lot more of a human touch to a lot of it than some of the other horror games that I can think of. I'm thinking of like Resident Evil games and like Dead Space and think and games like that where like yeah, there's other humans, but they're pretty like they're they're fairly spread out and I, I don't know their their impact on the game is fairly small. I mean, feel feel free to contradict me on any of that because I'm not as up on some of those, but. In this game, you have a lot more just like talking to people and going through and making plans with people. And there's, you know, a a lot more of that type of thing, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I was kind of going to mention that, too, is that um, a lot of the time I don't feel as frightened or feel like it's as much horror when I uh, when I have like a companion with me um, in a game, so a prime example of that would be like if you are familiar with the Resident Evil Five series, uh, Resident Evil series, and then Resident Evil Five is one where you always have a companion with you most of the time, um, and that is kind of like the one of the the more action ones of the Resident Evil franchise that maybe feels slightly less horror than the others. And so something with Half-Life 2 is that I feel like uh, seeing all these friendly faces and dealing with all with a lot of people, even in the Raven home section, when you're dealing with this kind of at the beginning, you're not really sure of the intentions of the guy that's helping you in Raven home. Um, But uh, even in that section, he provides a little bit of calm like once you're walking with him back to his compound i feel like the section becomes a little less horror because he's just like kind of happy and jovial and joking with you as it's going yeah and he like saves your butt several times like (laughs) i had several moments where one of those fast super creepy zombies is running at me and i'm like scrambling to pull the right gun out and then father gregory just takes him out for me Every time you see him, it's like, thank God. Oh my gosh. I get a reprieve for a second. I think that's all a good point, too, just pointing out the NPC thing, because a lot of horror thrives on the idea of isolation. 
whether it's in movies or in video games. And so, yeah, as soon as you can have another person in the room with you, even if it's just an NPC, it definitely lessens things. And you do spend a lot of time throughout Half-Life 2 supported by various characters, both, you know, large and small as far as the roles, like Father Grigori there in Ravenholm or Alex helping you out towards the back half of the game or just leading a group of NPCs around throughout or, or Barney. Just there's, you've always got, not always, but a lot of the game you have people supporting you. And then just for contrast, I guess some of the franchises that I've been playing most recently is uh, at this point, the Dead Space remake had recently come out here and as well as the Resident Evil 4 remake has come out. So I've been playing through both of those and thinking about like, you have people supporting you, but they're never with you. I won't say never, they're mostly not with you. Like in Dead Space, particularly most of the time you were by yourself. Uh, and that's a lot of the reason why people think the Dead Space 3 doesn't feel like horror or strays more from that formula because it is two-player and the first two games weren't. And then Resident Evil 4, you know, you have someone to save in helping save Ashley, but there's plenty of the game that you're by yourself. So I guess it's just one of those things too where because you do have all of this, these networks of NPCs, I, I like that you brought it up, Joe, anyway. Just, yeah, because you do have this network of characters that are helping you out, that does lessen some of the impact of some of the more horrific elements that you might experience because you're never really alone. So to get into the sound design a little bit on this, how did the soundtrack contribute to the overall atmosphere of the game for you? Uh, I love the soundtrack to this game and all the ones that have come after it, well, and before it, but I it I've kind of already mentioned this, but I think it does it's it's really good at telling you kind of how to feel about the situation there are definitely uh horror bits of the soundtrack that's that make you want to that make you feel creeped out and then there's moments where you know they drop in that like rock music and you're just like i am an action hero and i'm gonna tear these guys apart uh so anyways i think it does have a, a big effect yeah i was gonna say the music definitely plays a huge role um, I felt like the kind of action music was more impactful for me because I was sort of going in expecting this to kind of be more of a horror game. And then there's like this really like, you know, peppy action music that's playing during a lot of the sequences, especially when you're in the boat or in the car. Um, and so for me, that music really sets the tone i think for horror in a lot of different formats uh movies tv and video games and i think that the music being less kind of horror overall uh i think makes the game feel less horror for me and makes the tone less of a horror tone yeah i definitely think that the action music added to the action tone that i got rather than a horror but I will say it did freak me out sometimes because I thought I was just running down a regular canal or something and then the music would start and it's like that meme that's like, why do I hear boss music? <laughs> like, <laughs> I know I'm about to turn the corner and get shot at. 
how about for the general sound design of the enemies within the game, like things like that? I mean, we'd already had Mitz mention the howling of the zombies and them crying for help. And then, you know, the, but you've also got things like the combine and their communications with each other throughout it. So how did the general sound design influence the classification for you? I just got to say, every time I heard that stupid man hack behind me, I would get so mad. But it did freak me out because I knew that I was like, I got them all. And then you hear the man hack and it's like, no, like leave me alone. They're everywhere. <laughs> so I would say the man hack and the screaming zombies were definitely the ones that impacted me the most, got my heart racing the most. Yeah, those fast zombies are so creepy and they get like right up in your face and they're just, they do that like fast breathing, grunting, like... <laughs> I don't know, gremlin noise that like, I don't know that I remember specifically hearing that the first time and being extremely creeped out. So yeah. And then just the regular, the regular, uh, zombies too, uh, are also, you know, especially like you were saying, that's just when you're kind of thinking about what's happening there, like they're, it's, it's really creepy. I was going to say the little, like, uh, crab things that will jump on you and basically take you down to one life. I kind of started getting really frightened of those, too, just because when you see those, you're like, oh, shit, I got to move, move, move. And then uh, I think it's at the end of the Ravenholm section where you drop into that kind of basementy area, and there's just a ton of them everywhere. Uh, that part is pretty rough. Yeah. I thought it was interesting to make mention. I timed my playthrough this particular time, and uh, what I came at was um, the entire playthrough was about 11 and a half hours, and then my time spent in Ravenholm was about 45 minutes. So it's one of those things I think is always interesting when people kind of cite this game and they're like, oh yeah, there's, there's, you know, just looking at the amount of horror in it, because I think we can all agree Ravenholm, if you played that by itself, if that was the only thing you played, of course you would think this was a horror game. But then to look at the grand scope of how long the game is and how much of it is actually Ravenholm, it's not. It's kind of a drop in the bucket because Half-Life 2 is so good at like varying its gameplay and saying, like, okay, you got used to this thing. Now we're going to go do something completely different. And uh, I, I do like that it keeps changing over and over like that, but it allows it to kind of like play in a few different sandboxes, sometimes literally. <laughs> and... Uh, just allow you to experience different things throughout it. But the sound design is such a big part of what makes Ravenholm creepy all the way around the howling, the just, Oh, something's around the corner and it's going to come get me. And to have something that can, you know, just as such a small creature that can hide in the middle of nowhere, like you said, Matt, and take you down to one health. I mean, granted your suit picks that back up really quick, but the first time it happens, you're like, Oh hell, I'm something just one shot at me. I am almost at it from one shot. Yeah, I also would just add to that I played the game on easy mode and I really felt like it wasn't easy. <laughs> like even on easy mode, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't easy. So the game but I kind of really like is... that. Yeah, I do like that. But it's it's like, yeah, it's very unforgiving. And I think being unforgiving kind of adds to the horror a little bit because if you don't, if you stop moving in a lot of the situations like you're going to get murked and it's like even on easy you're going to have problems 
So I, I think that almost kind of adds to maybe the horror feel is that you're never really safe during the game. I feel like if I had more time to play this, because I started way too late, I would have played the actual game all the way through. I just felt like at the pace I was going, I was not going to finish, so I watched the rest as a playthrough. But I did like, kind of, I kind of liked the challenge of it, because the game sets you up as a hero, right? You're Gordon Freeman, everybody knows you, at least everybody in the Resistance knows you, and you have this super awesome suit that makes you really strong and all these like weapons. But at the same time, you're never really going against like one enemy at a time. There's always like five things shooting at you. So it kind of balances it out instead of making you just feel like this OP war hero. Well, I guess where did everyone else weigh in on that balance? Cause that is kind of what I was going to ask next is basically like he does, as you said, he's got the tough suit. He's got, He's got so many guns. He's finding health and ammo and armor everywhere. Um, and we've talked about before how heroes in horror films can sometimes lessen the feel of the horror. So I guess, do you feel like Gordon functions as a horror hero? Is he too tough to ever really feel like endangered? Obviously, we've picked some moments where we felt endangered. But where does everyone weigh in on that? I I do feel like... Uh... Gordon is a bit more of an action hero or that the way he's present presented is more of an action hero. He's kind of apart from what the world is to me, at least like he's dropped into this world and it it's, it's this horror world, but he's a, he's apart from, and he's got this armor. He's always finding weapons. The point is like, he's the right man in the wrong place. And the he's the right man he's the action hero in a horror world in a like sci-fi horror alien infested world uh but he but you know he's what that world needed at the time i kind of think that he does feel a little bit op at times maybe after after you get the the like gravity gun thing i think that definitely helps him feel like a lot stronger when you're playing with him, but that early section, like up until you get that for me, I, I felt like it was pretty tough. It's hard to say because I, I guess like as a player, he feels balanced, but if I'm looking at the story, I think he is too strong to be a horror hero because he's too strong. And like, I don't really know all of the Half-Life lore, so Joe and Steve, you guys are going to have to help me out, but it seems that he was literally hand-selected for this task because he's strong enough. So, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but is it seemed like the G-Man was like, okay, you have to go, like, work and do this or whatever um, because he's strong enough. Whereas, like, a horror... A horror hero seems like they just have to because they have to survive. Yeah, um, I guess just to confirm my feelings on it, I do feel like that's true. Like he was hand-selected for this. And one of the things that's really fun about this game is uh, uh, is some of those unknown things. And you can kind of picture the G-Man just playing this cosmic game of chess and just being like, I need this to go 
this way. So I'm going to tip the balances by dropping Gordon in right here at the right time um, to tip the scales the way I want them to be. And he's kind of like, you know, throwing down his ace card um, to to get the result that he wants. Yeah, because, I mean, that's one of the things, at least getting through the lore, too, is um, the G-Man watches Gordon throughout his experience in the first Half-Life game, and at the end of it basically picks him and says, like, you know, you're, you've proven yourself, you're formidable, and my employers have taken notice, so, you know, we want to hire you, and we'll tell you when we need you. And, of course, Gordon, he doesn't ever speak through any of these games, so you don't really know how he feels about it. In the first game, you can pick whether you want to accept or not accept. But at least in terms of Half-Life 2, they make canon that whether you chose to accept or not, you were still taken for, yeah, because they knew that you would be useful later. And I think that there's enough lore in there as well to go with the idea that the G-Man is playing the long game, not just in the sense of what he's planning to happen in the future, but that he is not bound by time as far as what he sees and experiences. So him knowing that Gordon was going to be the man that they needed later, like I feel like at least my interpretation is that he knew everything that was going to happen later and specifically picked Gordon in that moment, knowing that they would need him later. And that would be the perfect point to grab him. Yeah. Agreed. And then we've kind of gotten into this a little bit too. There's a lot of different horror games that are out there these days and a lot of different ways that you can interact with it. And this kind of relates to Gordon Freeman and how he is as a character too, is there's a lot of horror games where you can't really fight back you can just run or you can just hide uh, one of the popular ones that a lot of us have played here is dead by daylight for instance where you can sort of fight back but mostly it's running right that's your biggest ability there so does the sheer fact that you can fight back here make the difference not just how formidable you are when you do but just that you can fight back does that make a difference i think that it does make a difference um I don't think the ability to fight back uh, on the whole makes it so that it's not horror, but it certainly has a bigger effect. I guess, uh, so like Alien Isolation is, I, I really love the game and it's one of my favorite horror horror games. Uh, that being said, I've only played it really once and and that's because of how, how like, anxiety inducing it is um, for me um, but that's another one where you can sort of kind of fight back and especially against the alien itself it's really hard to fight back against them but that there i don't know that's definitely more horror and more horror throughout because you never feel like you're on like solid ground i don't know i don't i don't know that i feel that it makes it more or less horror whether or not you can fight back i know that i've played a lot of the biggest kind of horror games that where you can't do fighting back uh stuff like outlast and uh dead by daylight's a big one and and like bendy and the ink machine and things like that uh and i feel like those games are very horror 
more because of the tone and the feel and the music and the environment than just because you can't fight back in them. I don't know. Because, like, Outlast was scary, for example, for just a little bit. Outlast is another, is a famous kind of horror game that, where you don't, where you can't really fight back 100%. So that game, I feel like, is scary for just a little bit until you kind of figure out the mechanics, and then it just doesn't really become that scary anymore. Whereas something like Resident Evil 7, uh, is kind of horror and scary all the way throughout, and you can fight back in that. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't necessarily think that fighting back makes it more or less horror. It's it's just the overall tone of the game. Um, I think being able to fight back definitely lowers the stakes, but I think you can also have a horror game that that allows you to fight back, so no strong feelings either way, really. I would agree that I've definitely seen both categories where you can do it. I think as far as like whether or not I feel tense is affected a bit more by whether or not I can fight back. But I don't know that that necessarily takes it in or out of the horror genre. I would agree with what you said, Matt. It's the overall tone of the game wrapped around that mechanic that I think makes the real difference. So, yeah, I think the other thing that's funny, because I thought about, you know, how this game compares to Doom, and I'm going to bring up at least one of the ways in which I think that's different here in just a second. But I think that that is one of the things that maybe keeps Doom from feeling ever too horrific is because you, especially like in the 2016 remake Doom and Doom Eternal, you're supposed to be basically this thing that the demons fear, and you're just running through and ripping through things up. So it's like it's got this these horror creatures these horror monsters but you're so formidable and the idea that they're you're something they should be scared of is uh at least something that's somewhat common to half-life 2 with the idea of you know that you're someone that their the enemy is scared of and someone that is formidable and so i think that keeps it from ever feeling like at least in half-life 2 keeps it from ever feeling too horrific and maybe to a degree even in the new doom games ever keeps it from feeling too horrific for me yeah, I think especially in Doom, it's so like heavily action packed and and like almost like gore porn that it almost makes it less horror for me of how how actiony that game is. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Well, another thing I wanted to look at too that kind of affects that classification is the types of enemies that you deal with because that is one of the differences I was thinking about in terms of Doom to say this game just as a comparison is that you do have a lot of different enemy types. You have the ant lions, of which there's the standard ones, and then the ant lion guardian is kind of more of a boss. Uh, you have barnacles, you have head crabs that we've already talked about, the, the standard ones, the fast ones, the poison ones, different zombies, the runners, the poison head crab throwers. And then a lot of what you deal with as well is you have the combine themselves. You have the civil protection units, the soldiers, elite soldiers, snipers, and then you're dealing with some of their vehicles and automated units like things like Striders, the Combine APC, Hunter Choppers, Combine Gunships, Manhacks, Roller Mines, things like that. So how important is the type of enemy that you are fighting to the genre classification? So I guess trying to think about this, if you took out the like 
head crab zombies and just replace them with some other like alien creature that's just uh, alien creatures i think that would feel a little different to me um but because it's so much like a, a zombie i guess i think that does have an effect and uh fun fact some of the combine machines are cyborgs to one degree or another because sometimes when like the striders blow up or different things you can find like a brain inside um so yeah there's a bit of trivia i didn't know that that's interesting i guess it makes sense where they're already modifying the combine just the combine soldiers that you deal with like they're not just people like the civil protection at least appears in some cases to be but the combine soldiers are all like modified with various tech and genetic tweaking yeah i was thinking as i was playing through this that it it almost feels like the horror version of halo <laughs> like in some ways like like if you cuz halo has its own kind of in in universe version of zombies which is the flood and i feel like the flood are not as like horror as the enemies in half-life 2 so i almost felt like it was like if you were playing halo but a lot more of the enemies were meant to be kind of horrific or scary so i, I do think that the enemies in this make it a little bit more horror than anything else uh, especially like the ones that jump on you the fast ones and then the ones that are carrying several of them yeah, i think that those are definite horror elements of the game but they're often used in situations where it doesn't feel like a horror situation so it it overall doesn't feel as horror to me so one of the things that I got thinking about in terms of this game, just kind of in my head making the Doom to Half-Life comparison of why I felt like one was probably horror and one that, why I thought the other one wasn't, I got thinking about how often you encounter each type of enemy. So I found a YouTube channel that's called The Sex Positive Gamer, and uh, he and his friends, what they endeavored to do was to put together a kill count for Gordon Freeman across all the Half-Life games. Uh, their final count for Half-Life 2 was 750 kills, but of those, they listed that 637 of those kills were Combine soldiers. So the Combine is far, are by far the enemy that you spend the most time fighting, and the Combine themselves are humans that, as we mentioned, that they've undergone some sort of surgical modification, um, but ultimately that you're fighting what feels like, at least to me, normal human soldiers so does the fact that they are the enemies that you encounter most often in the game change things does it make it feel like most of your fights are military skirmishes to you uh so i think it's really interesting that it, the sex potas sex positive gamer went through and did that i feel like there must be a little bit of waiting to that though um, cause I, those numbers don't quite add up to me, especially over the whole, um, series for sure. Um, I, I feel like there's, there's maybe an aspect of there's a lot more of the zombie and other types of creature 
fights that you can avoid if you want to. Uh, but with like the combine fights are not really ones that you can avoid. Um, so I have a, I'm not, a l- have a little hard time answering this question, I guess, um, without maybe kind of doing a little more of my own research. Because I was just, just looking at those numbers. That's only about 100, 100 zombies. And I feel like, I don't know, in Ravenholm alone, and especially if you're counting just head crabs, like there's got to be more than that. Um, unless you're just out and out avoiding some of those fights. I don't know. So I guess that's, it's hard for me to answer that question on this game, but I would, I guess I would say that, uh, the combine fights, uh, do, or they do not generally feel like horror. They do feel more like a military type engagement. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of where the game moves more out of horror for me is when you're fighting the Combine and especially like the final sort of fights in the game where you're heading to that kind of citadel and you're commanding troops and that all feels feels like it's moving way more into the action sci-fi realm because of your enemy and because of everyone around you and because it is sort of a military engagement and that 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 stuff is more what put it way out of the horror category for me how about you mitts where do you weigh in on that as far as enemy type and the combine and how often you face them versus other enemies and things like that um honestly that's a hard one because i don't want to say that it can't be horror if you're mostly fighting other humans. Well, definitely not. But I don't know. It's a hard one. I, I don't. I wasn't gonna say anything because I don't really have a good answer. <laughs> uh-huh. But they also do make the combine soldiers feel not human, so that maybe does add a little bit to it. Yeah, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit already. But they're they are supposed to be pretty heavily modified humans, like you. You see a few cases where they, you know, have like these big like things attached to them. And I, I don't know, there's a lot of I'm not sure how official some of the, the stuff I've seen is out there, but there's, you know, some art out there um, that is specifically showing like what an elite combine soldier looks like underneath their helmets. And they're pretty not human looking. They look more like the stalkers, um, but like uh you know tank <laughs> version of the stalkers that are just anyways again i don't know how mu- how canon that is but i they are su- supposed to feel at least somewhat not human i think part of it for me too is it does it's clear that yes they're not entirely human and you would be forgiven for playing the game through and i think you could come away with either expectation and i wouldn't disagree with you you could finish out the game and tell me, yeah, they're definitely human in just suits. And then you could also tell me, hey, I played through the whole game and I was sure that they were some sort of weird alien under there. And I think I would buy it because the game doesn't necessarily overtly give you a lot of information in just Half-Life 2 what exactly you were fighting under that mask. Um, 
which I guess kind of leads into at least part of what I was thinking of next is one of the things that Half-Life 2 does a lot is not explain itself. It gives you some information, but it doesn't give you enough to fully flesh things out, which is honestly a good hallmark of any horror story, right? Because as soon as you give a full explanation of the enemy or the mystery or the thing that you're encountering, as soon as you explain exactly how it works, then you can get comfortable with it. And as soon as you're comfortable with it, it stops having whatever sort of horrific or scary impact it might have on you as the audience. So I guess the Combine as an example, is one of those things where because it's never fully explained, you can take it either way, and I can understand feeling a bit unnerved by their presence, even if they are just acting like a military force. But for me, at least, playing against them most of the time did just feel like fighting soldiers. Yeah, not to make another Halo reference, but fighting them versus fighting the the head crabs and zombies and things like that felt like fighting the elites versus fighting the flood in halo uh it felt like you were moving from an action sequence to a horror sequence or horror sequence to an action sequence if you if that change happened so I guess for the most part, would everyone say that the head crabs themselves, though, and the head crab zombies are the most horrific enemies that you fought in the game, or is there another enemy that you felt like took that title? For me, I guess they do feel like the most horror. Uh, I mean, we've already touched on a lot of it, um, but again, like this is something that Mitz had brought up. Just like when you stop and are thinking about like what they are. And how probably conscious the host is, is pretty horrifying. And, you know, they don't give you a lot of information on that. Like they, you know, the, the zombies are screaming and that sounds kind of human. And especially like you said, mitts, like when they catch on fire, it's pretty terrifying. Um, uh, and then, you know, some of the like things they're they're actually saying some things that are super muffled, and I never, I never would have really caught that without having like looking it up, without looking it up outside of the game. Excuse me, outside of the game itself. But you know, they're like screaming things. So, you know, like oh god, oh god, help me, uh, and that kind of thing. Like it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty horrifying. And then the other the other like kind of evidence in that isn't in this game, but I guess it's pretty strong in Half-Life Alex. And you get a lot of sense with the head crabs that the the host is still under there somewhere. There's one kind of like I guess for me it's like a heartbreaking moment because you you're kind of sneaking up to this area and like you come across some head head crab zombies and they don't know you're there at first, but there's like one like with its head like against this like ga glass display and it has like children's drawings um, behind it and the zombies just like kind of pawing at it and it's like I guess you you could you could totally miss I guess what I think is the message there uh, if you're not thinking about it but I guess for me it feels like they were trying to say like yeah, there's a bit of the human still in there and they remember what they were before and, you know, just the implications of like that that head head crab zombie like you know, having a connection to a child's drawing is kind of heartbreaking. 
So let's dig into that concept a little bit more here, because I think that, you know, we've we've chewed around the edges of it, but to deal with it kind of directly, there are a lot of horrifying implications and concepts inside of Half-Life 2. And the game doesn't always focus the attention of the player on these things. Of course, the head crabs is a big part of that, and the head crab zombies. And then you see other things in the Citadel, like the stalkers, who are surgically altered husks of humans that are lurking around. You can see that their their hands and their feet have been removed in favor of sort of these metal apparatuses instead. Um, the game deals with the forced sterilization of the human race. It's not necessarily a permanent thing, but the suppression field so that you can't, the human race can't have any children. You One of the first areas you come across, there's decaying playgrounds that uh, are devoid of any children. And knowing that in the timeline of this series that the Combiner is supposed to have invaded Earth some 20-ish years ago, uh, Alex, for instance, that you encounter would be one of the youngest people that you would be able to see. So just the idea of like, imagine not seeing any children for 20 years. I mean, there's it's like the movie Children of Men, but on top of that with this whole sci-fi alien occupation. And then on top of that, throughout the game, you have these in these continual themes of losing humanity of again head crabs being one of them stalkers being one of them uh breeding being one of them but other even smaller points like uh joe you'd pointed out too just before we recorded all this the idea you know something in the water causing people to forget and their general hopelessness and then humans either submitting or being taken to be part of the combine just because they felt like there was no other no other place to turn so there's a lot of these horrifying implications that you can sort of miss. So I guess I was curious, like, did all of these, were all of these things that you guys noticed when you were playing through or some of them news to you while you're hearing them now? What kinds of those implications stood out? Obviously the head crabs has been one of them. Um, I didn't know about the water causing people to have their brain altered. I just thought it killed you. Yeah, it's kind of a super subtle little thing. And it's one of those like you blink and you miss it or you don't talk to the right person and you miss it. They first introduced the idea um, like pretty much at the very beginning of the game. You come across somebody who's sitting in the train station and he just like sort of whispers to you and is just like, don't drink the water. There's something in it that makes you forget. And then there's kind of if you catch that, then you kind of uh, start like paying attention to some things throughout the game and you like a lot of the vending machines are like uh breen's special supply water i don't remember exactly what that's mm-hmm. called but you know it's just these cans of water that are you know breen's supply like uh, yeah i don't know anyways it's just it's pretty subtle but it's there and i guess for my part on the other stuff like it's a, it's a lot of that is stuff i've spent a lot of time thinking about and one of the things that's horrific, I'm not sure it's horror, but that's horrific to me um, about this game is just the tactics of the Combine. The, the, so many of their tactics are like just kind of terrifying. We've already mentioned, you know, what they do to what they do to you, um, you know, whether you resist or even whether you decide to join them. Uh, and, you know, you don't feel like you have much. Yeah, I can imagine citizens feeling like they don't have much choice. 
but you know, even if you say join them and become part of the civil protection, you might eventually just get altered into not having any choice anyways. And you can kind of maybe even think of some of the combine soldiers as just a sort of different type of zombie in that case. But the other thing is like, you know, maybe there's some Half-Life fans out there who could correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my understanding is like the head crabs themselves are not from the Combine world. They're from Zen. So you get, um, you get this other race, this Combine race who finds some of the more horrific parts of, uh, another, you know, ecosystem and starts using them as bioweapons against the populace that they're trying to control. So they drop these head crabs in. And the other kind of horrifying part about that is, is it, it, you know, it, to use a mystery men reference, like you see, I kill my own men. So they, they drop these head crabs in these areas and they don't really care who they kill. You know, they, and you see, you come across several sections of the game where, um, the combine are fighting the head crabs, even though the head crabs are just one of the weapons that the combine uses. So I, I don't know. I think that anyway, sorry, I've babbled on a lot, but I think it's a really, really interesting to think about their, their tactics. Yeah. I personally don't, I didn't really think about it. The, that stuff too much as I was playing. Um, but it did feel like they were obviously using some some grotesque kind of horror tactics during the game, but I didn't I didn't like delve too deep into thinking about it myself. Does that kind of affect the way that you see it now? Realizing some of those things, thinking about some of those things, or that you can still largely ignore some of those implications, does that keep it from feeling like horror? I typically find the stuff where it's only horror if you think about it for a long time and kind of delve into the implications. I find that that stuff feels less horror to me in a lot of cases. So, I don't know. it. If you have to, like, stop and deeply think about how it is horror and it doesn't kind of affect me in the moment... I think it feels less horror to me. I think that's largely where I weigh in with it for this game. I think that if you are a big horror fan and you want to play this with more of a horror experience, I think that you you can find it here. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily what they were going with with this installment. So while those things are there, I think that they explore them to better effect in later chapters and in, and in some cases earlier chapters. And it, so I think that this one is kind of all the way around with kind of everything we've discussed, trying for more of an action sci-fi tone. Um, but they've still got those horror elements, so they wanted to retain some of those things. But yeah, I think... It's just clear with all those choices that the focus is elsewhere to me in this one. And I think in some ways Ravenholm being there, and I think I'd said this before we even recorded, but it was still felt true after playing through and kind of looking through everything in some ways that 
Raven home drives home that the rest of the game is not horror by showing what it would be like if they chose to make the whole game horror in a way. So it's like, here's here's a proof of concept if this was a horror game, but we're only doing it for this small section of it. Now you can still see those things and you can still know that they're there and we'll sometimes revisit them again to great effect, like the various underpass sections with the toxic waste where you're kind of stuck with all of them surrounding you. But for the most part, it's not going to be like that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I guess it's you know, ultimately why I decided to not call this one horrors just because you can, you kind of do have to go looking for it a little bit, or maybe that's not exactly the right way to put it, but, um, it's there, but you have to be paying attention for it, I guess. Let's see. I did have a couple other questions, but I decided, I think mostly we've kind of dealt with them as we talked so i figured they'd be a little bit redundant so i'm kind of leaving off there so with that i wanted to see if anyone had any other things that they wanted to bring up about the game before we close out i know we had a couple trivia bits that we'll probably read here in a second but uh any anything else anybody wanted to discuss about all this so two of the other aspects that i have been thinking about and have thought a lot about are one um barney the character Barney, like just thinking about like what he must have gone through and what he's going through, um, like maybe right before the this game starts is intense, because um, you know he's undercover with civil protection, and the things that he must have seen and the things he must have had to do to remain under undercover uh, are probably horrifying that leads into my other point uh but i'd love to hear your guys' thoughts about that but i guess i'll just throw my other point out there too because it is kind of relevant the other thing that i think about with this game a lot too is um the attitude of of the characters can change can change the genre a lot um and i think about that with like uh, I mean, we've we've used them as examples before, so I'll just stick with them. But like, say, Resident Evil or or Dead Space, you have a lot of the characters kind of uh, acting a lot more like somber and a lot more scared and a lot more, you know, the the tone of their attitude is a lot lower. I guess if that makes sense. Where in this game, uh, I feel like there's sort of this um, this attitude with most of your main. NPC characters of sort of just like this hope endures in them uh, that I think is important to the feeling of the game and 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 a feeling not like horror and Barney is one of those examples because almost all of your interactions with him like he's joking he's you know razzing you for like being able to throw a switch you know way to go Gordon your MIT education really pays for itself and that kind of thing um but like just to think of what he has been having to do is intense to me and like also the risk of like he's i I guess i kind of view it and i'm again not quite sure if this is canon but i feel like civil protection is sort of this low end of the uh combine army and they're probably mostly human and that's why barney can kind of get away with it but as you get further up in ranks they i I feel like it's they 
will modify you more and more and you'll lose more and more of you of your humanity and so barney's having to most likely um skate this really thin line of like well i need to do what i'm supposed to do but i can't be too good or i can't get promoted or i can't like draw attention to myself or i might be you know drafted into the army and lose my choice in the matter here and lose my free will anyways i guess I would love to hear any of your thoughts on all of that stuff. Sorry, I know it's kind of a bunch. Well, I would agree with your interpretation of who gets augmented kind of thing, that civil protection is mostly human, but that the combine soldiers themselves are modified. And I think that that sounds right to me is the idea that them being modified, the better they get, then the more up in the ranks they get and the more that they're tinkered with. And so, yeah, that makes sense, especially like I know he says it is a joke, too, but he even tells Gordon when they first meet in this game that he's way behind on his beatings quotient, you know? Yeah. So, you know, you can see that as a bit of levity and probably, of course, it is that as well. But uh, that maybe there is some truth to that as far as stating the backstory of what's going on here and what he's got to do to kind of, like you said, skate the line where he's never taken to task, never in trouble for not doing what he's supposed to, but never so good as to, you know, be taken further in. And I agree. We've talked about it too, in terms of other horror movies as well as the idea of how the characters react to things informs how you as the audience reacts to things. So when most of your friends are in you know, hopeful spirits, happy, they're making jokes about some of this stuff, then that's helping to keep the tone from ever getting too heavy despite what they're dealing with. So that's the game's way, the writer's way of telling you how they would like you to feel about what's going on. And uh, whereas, yeah, you don't get that just, again, because it's fresh in my mind with Dead Space, everyone's in dire straits, everyone's dour, everyone's serious. There's never really any joking around. It's all focused on the task at hand and the horrors of what you're experiencing. So those characters inform you again of how to react to the world that you're seeing, even if you don't know that they're telling you how to react to the world you're seeing. Anyway, that was me long-windedly agreeing with you. Yeah, no, I think it's a really, all of what you said is really good. Yeah, I think all of that adds to the tone of it not being horror is the, your companions and everybody that you're interacting with being kind of chipper and upbeat and then having upbeat soundtracks and things like that. It does disguise kind of those moments of that could be horror in another game or another situation, and that's kind of what firmly puts it in the not horror category for me. There's a there's a moment in Half-Life 2 episode 1 where I think I think we think we've already mentioned that the episode 1 feels more like horror uh but you're you're down in like a pitch black area and there's zombies popping up around you and it's a like I think a very scary um setting and this is the first time you come across uh, combine soldiers that have been infected by head crabs. And, you know, uh, there's just this uh, little moment 
that I think says a lot about just the attitude of most of the NPCs in it. But you come across that head crab, head crab zombie uh, that's a combine one, and you know Alex is like, "So does that make it like a like a a, a zombine?" <laughs> and then like she chuckles to herself LOL. and like. Yeah, yeah, like, I don't know, you can just imagine her, like, nudging Gordon, being like, get it, zombine? (laughs) And, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's one of those things that makes me love the series, just because it it can be, it can be scary, but it always keeps that kind of lightheartedness to it, and it's one of the reasons I like a lot of the characters in it, too, like, they're kind of in these desperate situations, but they, um, but they still kind of maintain their humanity. And I think that's, you know, a big point of these, of this game series is like, there's so many ways to lose your humanity in this world. Uh, but you know, the people that we care about and the people that have made it this far are the ones who have found ways to maintain their humanity. And even at the end, uh, what's her face? Trader girl, trader woman, eventually also even decides to do what she knows is right, which is a nice moment. Yeah. What's her name again? More Judith Mossman. Mossman, Mossman. I think it's also worth mentioning too, just because uh, it's one of the things that anybody who's played Half-Life, of course, already knows going into it. But if you're not very familiar with the series too, it's just for a long time, there's supposed to be a Half-Life 3 whether that was going to be its own separate game or whether or not Half-Life 3 would be the sum total of episodes of Half-Life 2, Episode 1, Episode 2, and Episode 3. I guess that's a little bit open for debate. But Half-Life 3 is a game famous for not existing and having next to no detail on, and that seemed like that was where it was going to be because Half-Life 2, Episode 2 leaves the game series on a big cliffhanger. But then with Half-Life Alex, then there's, you know, this renewed hope that there might be more to come. Maybe it won't be Half-Life 3 proper, but that the Half-Life universe is still alive and well, and that there's maybe even more still coming. So I don't know. That's It's a pretty exciting time to be a Half-Life fan, really. Absolutely. I, I don't know. I, for a long time, had kind of resigned myself to... Like I was like ninety nine percent resigned to there not ever being any more Half Life games before Alex came out. So like it meant like a it meant a lot when Half Life Alex came out. Um, it like it just revitalized so much hope, I guess, in the series. And <clears throat> one of the things that I I kind of I, I think is a big deal about the Half-Life games across the board is they're usually, well, I, not usually, I think they're always trying to, and they've said as much, they, they're always trying to, uh, they're not going to just release a game. They're always pushing a boundary in one way or another. And I think you can really see that in each of the installments. Uh, and Alex is no exception. And I think like the VR sector uh, of gaming is still kind of like trying to catch up with Alex and you know most of the I've played a lot of uh, uh, not all not a ton but like a lot of VR games at this point and nothing in my opinion really 
or very few things, I should say. There there are some other good Half-Life or other VR games out there, but very few things come close to what Alex is. Um, and and it's three years old at this point. So uh, I don't know. They It's really exciting to know that that exists, even though now we've, again, been waiting another three years for another installment. I uh, I feel a lot more hopeful that they will come out with stuff. One of the bits of trivia that I that I had come across was uh, so there's this IGN interview from 2020 that uh, Gabe Newell and Robin Walker, who's one of the main or the lead developers on Half-Life Alex, did. I highly recommend the interview. It's very interesting to watch. Uh, but Robin Walker uh, said, like, I I want to do more Half-Life games. And that put a lot of hope in me, too, because, like, somebody at Valve is actively thinking about Half-Life and wants to be doing more games. So that's really exciting to me, too. So, yeah, anyways, another long-winded rambling thing for me, just to agree with you, Steve, that uh, it's an exciting time to be a Half-Life fan, even though we have been waiting another three years. All right. Any any other thoughts? Any other things we want to share before we close out today? I could go on and on, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I guess I'll leave it there. Sorry you all have had to listen to my voice so much this episode. No apologies necessary, and I'm going to edit out your apology. Ha <laughs> ha. I probably will just Fine. leave it. No, I appreciate just all of your insight on all of it, because there's a lot of things. You know, I've played this game, and I like this game. I did a lot of research for this episode, but, um, you know, there's, you've obviously, it's a franchise, as you said, that's near and dear to your heart, so I always appreciate your insight on it. There's a lot of things that you've thought about and considered with it that, uh, you know, I just hadn't taken the time to think about before with it, so I appreciate your adding that into the conversation. I feel like it's helpful, helpful for what we're doing, figuring out if it's horror and just interesting in general. Well, thanks. I guess I do have one other thing I would throw in there, and this isn't anything to do with horror, but it's just a kind of concept that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't think, so every Half-Life 1, the original Half-Life, was Gordon's story. And um, everything after that, Half-Life 2, all the episodes, Half-Life Alex, I think are Alex's story. And you play as Gordon in all except for Alex, uh, but I don't think you're, it's, it's not your story, it's Alex's story. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're fighting alongside her friends and her family, and we're just dropped into this world, but this is her world. And then one thing I've thought about that maybe is a little a little more on topic for whether it's horror or not is I feel like you get this, uh, this thing in, uh, like in the walking dead where, where they wanted to show like Carl growing up in this world of zombies and, um, you see what he becomes and like how he's developed, how he, uh, you know, development developmentally like progresses through this world uh, that is pretty much all he's ever known. And I feel like you get the same thing with Alex and you kind of, you don't get to see her grow up in the world, but you see kind of what the end result of that is. And you get this person who's very confident um, and very, um, you know, very capable 
and also, but still maintains this like hope and this like good attitude. And you can kind of see where she gets it. She gets it from her father um, and from most of the other resistance leaders that you end up coming in contact with. And uh, that's one of the reasons, you know, you end up uh, loving her, at least, you know, I, I love her as a character and why uh, it's so cool to kind of be able to step into her shoes in Half-Life Alex and get a little like more of her story. Cause I, I think that all of these games apart from the first one are her story. Anyways, there's a bunch of fan stuff again. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think that all makes sense too, because I think that when Half-Life, the original Half-Life came out out of necessity, your characters were all these silent protagonists, you know, like, the doom guy didn't say anything in, you know, one and two. And, uh, I think that they continued that with half-life two again, of him being the silent protagonist and him not saying anything. But I think that it does mean that you don't have a connection to Gordon. I mean, they want you to be able to step into that role emotionally. So Gordon is whoever you are, right? That's what they want. But it also means that it's a little bit harder to root for him because he is no one. He is a blank slate for you to step into. And you can see other video game series making adjustments in that way. And I look at Dead Space as an example. In the first Dead Space, Isaac Clarke doesn't say anything. It's stuff that happens to him. There's people that are around him and you care in that regard. But I think that when I started to really care about Isaac Clarke as a character was too because that's where he started talking and talking and you know, actually, you could see how he felt about things and how he's experiencing things. And I think that was great when they did the remake and they added his voice back in and gave him a character. And so with Half-Life, I guess you'd have that same question to make if you did make a new game that featured Gordon Freeman, whether or not he would talk or not. But I think that you've made this great point and they've already made a decision in a way is to say that Alex is a character that you can care about because she is an actual character. And so why not have it be her story since she is so connected to it? I think that's, I don't know. I think, yeah, what you said is great. I think that really makes sense. So I am more interested personally in seeing what else happens to her than I am seeing what happens to Gordon Freeman. Yeah, I mean, you love Gordon because you're playing as him, but I really feel like he's a side character in all this when you start thinking about it. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Zidhor. Uh, if you have any thoughts on all this, you want to hit us up. Of course, you know, you've got all of our information here in the closing. So, you know, look us up. Let us know what you think. Um, and then if you'll join us back here in two weeks, we'll be talking about the video game Little Nightmares, continuing talking about video games for the month of April. And uh, we will see you then. I have been Steve. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I am Mitt. Bye. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. That was supposed to be a headcrab zombie. <laughs> that was pretty good. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes? Or did you just want to say hi? If so, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Is It Horror Pod. Or you can email us at isithorrorpodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is it horror?